Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show and to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm your host, Josh Downs. And uh, today we're going to be taking a look at 1 Nephi chapter 6 through 10. And the theme is Come and Partake of the Fruit. Uh, I love these chapters. You're going to hear me say that a lot. I love all the chapters in the Book of Mormon. But uh, this one for a very specific and particular reason, that being it contains Lehi's dream, which has always been a very special chapter to me for lots of different reasons, um, which I'm excited to get into uh, with you today. Before we get started, though, just a quick update on a few things before we get started with this uh, this episode, this lesson. Starting next week, uh, both the transcripts and the lesson and study guides will be moving to either a subscription-based access or will be available to be purchased individually. Now, I appreciate your understanding for that. I need to be able to be compensated in some aspect for the time that I put into these things. And so if you find that those things have been helpful for you in either your personal study and the teaching of whatever lesson we're going through with your family or in a particular calling you might have, especially as it is youth-related, then I hope that you'll support me by either signing up for a subscription for these materials or just purchasing them individually based on, on when you need them. Any questions on accessing them or any problems that you have accessing them moving forward, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know. And thank you in advance for supporting me, supporting this podcast, and giving me the ability to be able to continue to do this through that support. Now, here's the background of this week's study. Lehi's dream, with its iron rod, mist of darkness, spacious building, and tree with most sweet fruit, is an inspiring invitation to receive the blessings of the Savior's love and atoning sacrifice. For Lehi, however, this vision was also about his family. Because of the thing which I have seen, I have reason to rejoice in the Lord, because of Nephi and also of Sam. But behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you. When Lehi finished describing his vision, he pleaded with Laman and Lemuel to hearken to his words that perhaps the Lord would be merciful to them. Even if you have studied Lehi's vision many times, this time think about it the way Lehi did. Think of someone you love. As you do, the security of the iron rod, the dangers of the spacious building, and the sweetness of the fruit will take on new meaning, and you will understand more deeply all the feeling of the tender parent who received this remarkable vision. I love that introduction. I love the suggestion of taking someone personal that you know and love into it, and that by doing that, those symbols that we'll take a look at in, in a little bit today will take on a whole new level of meaning as you do. There's three key principles I want to kind of focus on for this week. And the first one is Lehi's vision in chapter 8, because it is one of the greatest chapters and visions and revelations, for that matter, really, in my opinion, in all of Scripture. This particular chapter and dream is best studied and learned, I feel, though, in its entirety by looking at it as a big picture. We'll have opportunities later on to really dig into it and to go a little bit smaller and see what each of these symbols mean from Nephi's experience with the dream and the the vision and revelation that he receives regarding it. But for today, I just want to go through it in its entirety from beginning to end and point out a few things along the way because I think there's some great principles that can be taken in the context of the whole before we get into some of the specifics of the dream. And so for sake of time, I'm not going to read through the entire chapter, which I'm tempted to do, but I'm just going to kind of paraphrase, pull out some, some key lines that you may want to mark as you go through it as I kind of paint the picture of this picture and, and this vision and dream and, and hopefully do it in a way that will add new context and meaning to you as you go through and study it in a little bit more depth this week. Now, it's important to, to see not only the dream, but how it starts. I think how it starts and how it ends provides some very important building blocks to better understanding the rest of it. Starting in verses four through eight, 
as you read through these verses, you'll see that it starts out with Lehi actually finding himself traveling in a dark and dreary wilderness and wandering in a dark and dreary wilderness and in darkness, as he records, for literally hours. In fact, he wanders in that until he prays unto the Lord for mercy, according to the multitude of his tender mercies. A great question to take into your study is why? Why does this vision, this dream, start out in this way? There's clearly a message that the Lord wants for the readers and for Lehi to be able to get from it. And I wonder if a part of our journey, and I think that's what you're going to see as we go through this, is that Lehi's journey and the things that he experienced in many ways mimics and relates to our own personal journey of coming to Christ and coming to the tree, if you will. And one of the first aspects that is required for everyone, I believe initially, is to recognize the dark and the dreary wilderness that they are in without Christ in their life. And that is not a place that we get to overnight. That's not a place that everyone sees clearly. And and I think you know what that means. There are people that can be and have been and will be wandering in darkness for quite some time before they ever recognize, like, this isn't good. This isn't right. I don't like this. I don't like the way my life is going. I don't like the choices that I'm making. I don't like the way that I feel. I don't like the things that are happening to me. It feels like darkness to me. And it's in that recognition where things can begin to change until Lehi prays and, and he recognizes that he's in darkness and then tries to do something to get out of it. Nothing else is unfolded to him. And I think that's the first step that you'll see that every person, every one of us needs to take is to recognize that a life without God is not much of a life at all. That we need him. We need him in it to bring light to us, to help us to feel alive. And until we do that, life is going to be dark and life is going to be dreary. But once Lehi recognizes that and turns to God for mercy, help me to get out of this funk that I'm in, this darkness that I'm in, that's when things begin to change for him. And he starts to see things that he hadn't seen before. And the first thing that he notices or that he makes mention of is in verse 9, he says he sees a large and spacious field. But then he clarifies that a little bit in verse 20. And I would have you mark as if it had been a world. He references that large and spacious field, but adds that modifier, that clarifying declaration to it as if it had been a world. It's almost as if he's saying, I see a world without God in it, or I just see the world in general. And it's described as this large and spacious field. And in the middle of this large and spacious field, he then sees in verse 10, a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. So almost right off the bat, The idea is presented to us that here in this vision, you are going to learn how to find happiness in the world. See that connection? He sees a spacious field as if it had been a world and then a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. All of us want happiness. All of us want to be happy. And in just those first few verses, it's almost as if God is saying, here, I'm going to show you how to find happiness in the world because that's what's been set up now for Lehi to see and to experience and I might just add not just happiness but something even better than just happy this is like I want you to mark in verse 11 all the adjective the the superlatives that describe the happiness that is a part of the tree and the fruit things like it is the most sweet it is above all that I have ever before tasted In other words, nothing could be better or make us happier than this. And that's an important thing to recognize as well. Because there's lots of things out there in the world that the world will say will help make you happy. But God is being very clear at the very beginning of this. If you want to find happiness in the world, this is how you do it. This is where it is. Because there is nothing that will make you as happy, taste as sweet, be better than this. Verse 11, he describes the color of it, being white to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. Verse 12, that it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. Then again in verse 12, I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. Again, there's nothing 
that can taste as good, be as good, make you feel as good as this. But then this point, which goes back to kind of the introduction to the chapter that we were given, when you experience something good, something this good, think about what the very next thing is that you want to do with it. Is it not to share it? That's almost ingrained in us. Whether it's movies that we've seen or music that we've listened to or videos that we've watched or food that we've tasted or just experiences that we've had, it's always better when we share it with someone else. That is the natural inclination that just grows out of us whenever we experience anything of value. We want to share it with those that matter most to us. We want to share the experience with them. We want them to, to listen to what we've listened to, to hear what we've heard, to see what we've seen, to taste what we've tasted. Lehi experiences that in this vision when he looks for and then he sees his family. And he wants them to come and partake of this fruit and he beckons them to come. And some do, as we heard at the introduction, and some don't. And you know, that is the nature of sharing anything that is important and valuable and wonderful to us. There will be some that will come and some will be excited to experience this as, as well and others just simply will not. It's not up to us to force these experiences on others, just to invite and to allow them to choose for themselves. When the Savior was asked by some disciples early on in his life where it was that he lived, I loved his answer. He invited those that had asked him Instead of telling him where he lived, he said, come and see. That invitation, I believe, is universal to each and every one of us. Come and see. Come follow me. Come unto me. Lehi's invitation to his family is the Savior's invitation to his family, to us. It's the invitation of parents everywhere to their children. It's the invitation of our church leaders and prophet and apostles to us. It's the invitation of all those who have found Christ and the happiness that is in him. Now, the rest of the chapter is about how to get to the tree, how to get to Christ and partake of his light and the happiness that he offers us in life. Greater happiness, mind you, than anything else that can be possibly offered to us. And so to that end... Lehi has shown several things. First of all, in verse 19, he's shown a rod of iron that extends along a river leading from the tree. And then in verse 20, he's shown a straight and narrow path that runs along the rod that leads to the tree. Then in verse 21, he sees numberless concourses of people trying to obtain what? Not the rod and not the tree per se initially, but the path that leads to it. So whenever I draw this vision out, just for anyone to see, whether it's in a class or for my family, I, of course, draw all the typical elements that you see. But at the beginning of the path, I draw a world, almost as if to symbolize this is God's plan for the world. And this is how you get to the tree. And the, the path is what will lead to it. However, whenever I draw it, there is also something else that I add that isn't mentioned directly here by Lehi. But it is by Nephi later on. As Nephi is describing much later, having seen the baptism of Christ, he points out this about what is at the beginning of the path for all of us. As he describes our need and the importance of following Christ's example, not only in being baptized, but in all things. In 2 Nephi chapter 31 verse 17, he says, Wherefore do the things which I have told you, I have seen that your Lord and your Redeemer should do. For for this cause have they been shown unto me, that ye might know the gate by which ye should enter. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water, and then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. And then verse 18, And then are ye in this straight and narrow path, which leads to eternal life. Yea, ye have entered in by the gate, Ye have done according to the commandments of the Father and the Son, and ye have received the Holy Ghost, which witnesses of the Father and the Son, unto the fulfilling of the promise which he hath made, that if ye entered in by the way, ye should receive. In other words, what is it that he is saying is at the beginning of the path that we all must pass through in order to obtain the path? It's the gate of baptism. That changes things a little bit for me in this vision because the gate of baptism is found and only found in the church because that's where the priesthood resides. 
This is the covenant path. And the covenant path is started on through the gate of baptism. That's the first covenant that we make when we're old enough to be baptized. And so in many ways, this vision that Lehi has is for the world, but it is also specifically for members of his church and kingdom, those that truly obtain the path, the covenant path that leads to the tree. And he's going to see numberless concourses of people that are trying to obtain initially the path. These are the people that are searching for God in their lives and searching for Christ and little by little are being brought closer to him as they follow him, as they try to live according to the truth that they have up until the point where missionaries knock on their door and they are ready and they are prepared and they hear a familiarity in their message that resonates with them and they recognize truth because they've been living it and they want more of it. They are hungry for it. And they do the the necessary steps and make the necessary commitments that leads them to baptism. And then guess what? They are on the path, just like all of us are that have been baptized. And I want you to understand that aspect of this and to see the significance of it because you have found the path. You are on the path. That leads to Christ and happiness. You found it. You have it. And I don't know that we recognize how amazing and how incredible it is that of all the blessings that we've been given, one of the greatest is that we have found and entered in the covenant path. I hope you can see that for what it is. What a tremendous blessing and opportunity each of us has as members of this church having passed through the gate of baptism and entered into the path. The Savior himself said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. You found it, and you're on it. And I think that is one of the greatest takeaways we can have from this vision. This now allows us to look at the rest of the vision from the question, what is it that might keep us or keep you from the tree and staying on the path that leads to it? Well, in verse 22, there were many that came forth and did commence in the path. But then in verse 23, there arose a mist of darkness that caused those that had commenced in the path to lose their way. In verse 24, another group comes forth and starts on the path as well. I see them as having been baptized and entering into uh, the, the church and gospel. But this group caught hold of the rod of iron, which helped them press through the mist of darkness, clinging unto the rod of iron, until they came to the tree and partook of the fruit. But then, a warning in verse 25, after they had partaken of the fruit, they did cast their eyes about as if they were ashamed. They had been holding on to the rod, but they hadn't quite learned to let go of the world. And that's what we're introduced to next in verses 26 through 28, is the great and spacious building, which is marked by things like being high in the air or high above the earth that it's filled with old and young, that it can affect us all at any age, that it has male and female individuals that are in it. It doesn't discriminate by gender either. This building represents the pride of the world, and no one is immune from it. In a great talk, President Benson taught that pride is the universal sin, that it is in all of us, and all of us struggle with it in some way, shape, or form. And so we all need to be on guard for it. In the building, those that were in it are described as having a manner of dress that was exceedingly fine. Seems to be that there's a a real focus on self that seems to be the greatest characteristic of those in the building. When our greatest care, I think, is what we wear, (laughs) we must lose sight of everyone else because, well, all we can see is ourselves. These people are making fun of the path, of the rod, of the tree, of those that are involved with any of them in any way. And then in verse 28, after they had tasted, those individuals, because of those that were in the building, they were ashamed and fell away and were lost. Verse 30, Lehi sees others pressing forward that caught hold of the end of the rod of iron that pressed their way forward, not just through the mist of darkness, but through the opinions and the the trends and the teasing and the laughing and scoffing of others. These individuals are continually holding fast until they came forth and fell down. I, I always encourage the marking of that phrase, they fell down, because this group was where they wanted to be 
and they were not planning on ever leaving. On their journey, they had learned to let go of the world by holding fast to God's word and his covenant path. Kevin W. Pearson of the 70 taught that trials are like mists of darkness that can blind our eyes and harden our hearts. Unless we are continually holding fast to the word of God and living it, we will become spiritually blinded rather than spiritually minded. Search the Book of Mormon, he said, and the words of living prophets every day, every day, every day. It is the key to spiritual survival and avoiding deception. Without it, we are spiritually lost. To me, that's one of the greatest lessons we can take away from Lehi's Tree of Life vision is the significance of holding on to the rod and staying on the path. Elder Bednar, in a wonderful talk, points out a great truth about the rod of iron that is important for us to recognize. He says, Please note that the ability to resist the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary is promised to those individuals who hold fast to, rather than merely cling to, the Word of God. He says, Interestingly, the Apostle John described Jesus Christ as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Therefore, he says, one of the names of Jesus Christ is the Word. The imagery changes for me. That imagery changes things for me in Lehi's dream from how hard am I holding on to the rod of iron, the word of God, to how hard am I holding on to Christ? I'll tell you, he is in every aspect of this vision from the path to the tree. And understanding this has brought a whole new meaning for me to his declaration in John chapter 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man cometh to the Father but by me. In that statement, he is teaching basically the tree of life vision, isn't he? That he is the way or the path, that he is the truth, which is found in the rod of iron, and that he is the life, the tree of life that gives life, eternal life, to those that partake of him. I've come to love that statement because of how much I love the tree of life vision. In that same talk given by Elder Bednar, he says, Let me suggest that holding fast to the Word of God entails, one, remembering, honoring, and strengthening the personal connection we have with the Savior and His Father through the covenants and ordinances of the restored gospel, and two, prayerfully, earnestly, and consistently using the Holy Scriptures and the teachings of living prophets and apostles as sure sources of revealed truth as we are bound and hold fast to the Lord and are transformed by living his doctrine, I promise, he says, that individually and collectively we will be blessed to stand in holy places and shall not be moved. If we abide in Christ, he will then abide in and walk with us. Surely in the days of trial his saints he will cheer and prosper the cause of truth. Press on, hold fast, heed not. And one last point uh, needs to be made here that at the end of the vision, Lehi makes mention that there were observed to be multitudes of people not feeling their way to the tree, but feeling their way to the great and spacious building. Apparently, it has a draw to it as well, right? Opposition in all things, Christ and the world. And I'm sure that you felt yourselves, I know I have, pulled towards both at different times and in different ways. The world certainly can be very alluring. The promise of, of wealth, of instant gratification, of happiness through the possession of cool stuff. I mean, who wouldn't naturally want those things? Well, that's the part of all of us that we've come here in part to learn to overcome. The natural man. Don't feel bad because you naturally want things of the world or are drawn to those things. Just try not to let those wants become your world. Lehi's dream ends with a pretty stark warning to that end, and especially, I believe, to those that are members of the Lord's Church. That as many of those that had commenced on the path, held on to the rod, and made it to the tree, and were partaking of the fruit, that heeded the laughing and the fingers of scorn coming from those in the great and spacious building, 
had fallen away. I think this is in part of what the Lord meant when he taught that no man can really serve two masters. At some point, we will all have to make the decision as far as where we stand. Lehi, at this point, fearing for his own children, pleads with Laman and Lemuel with all the feeling of a tender parent that they would hearken to his words and follow the Lord. Now we'll get into the specifics of each symbol and what they mean a little bit more in depth later on when we get into Nephi's vision. But again, the main point to take away from Lehi's dream is that it is symbolic of our journey in life. The choices that we can make, the consequences of those choices, and how each choice is an opportunity to move us closer to happiness in life and to the tree or closer to the instability of the great and spacious building. And the two things that will get us there safely is the covenant path and the rod of iron. Now, some questions to consider in this chapter is, what part of Lehi's dream sticks out to you the most and why? I think it's different for each one of us. And I think there's lessons to be learned from that individually. Also, why do you think it starts out with Lehi discovering that he is in a dark and dreary wilderness? What does the darkness allow him to see more clearly and easily? And what does this teach about the principle of contrast and opposition in all things? If Lehi saw you as a part of the multitudes that he saw, where would you place yourself in this dream? Why is the great and spacious building so attractive to others? And why do you think fine clothing is associated with the great and spacious building and so often with pride in general? Does that really mean that we should avoid nice clothes? (laughs) What else were they doing that was the real problem? How have you experienced others making fun of you, looking down on you, or shaming you for doing what you knew was right or by following the Lord in some way? How have you experienced joy from following the Lord? What role do the scriptures, the words of living prophets, and personal revelation play in this dream and in your own life? From this dream, why is it so important for us to share our faith and our testimony with others, especially with those that we love most? And as a young person, how have your parents exhorted you to follow the Lord with all the feelings of a tender parent, and sometimes maybe all the feelings of a not-so-tender parent? And this isn't just a question for those of us that are young, for it's also for those of us that are old, because... To this day, my parents will still exhort me to follow the Lord with all the feelings of a tender parent. You never stop being a parent to your kids. And maybe most importantly, why is it that they do that? Why have they exhorted you with all the feelings of a tender parent to follow the Lord? What are they and most parents afraid of, like Lehi was of Laman and Lemuel? Now, I knew that that chapter would take the majority of our time, so just two quick principles here to end with uh, before we close. First of all, I want to go to chapter 9, verses 5 through 6, where Nephi records, I don't know all the reasons why I am making this separate record with things that have already transpired that uh, have been recorded by my father, but he says, I know that I'm making it for a wise purpose in him or in the Lord, which purpose I know not. But then he points this out. The Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, and he hath all power. I want you to mark those phrases in those verses, because these are two of the greatest truths about God that we can learn. Number one is that God knows all things, literally knows all things. What was it that he was preparing for some 2,500 plus years before it happened? What mistake did he know Joseph was going to make some 2,500 plus years before he actually made it. Well, he knew he was going to lose the 116 pages long before he was ever even born. Now, some might say, well, why come here then if God already knows how things are going to go and knows exactly what we are going to choose? Well, life isn't just about what we would choose, but the personal experiences and consequences that we experience and have from those choices. Joseph was a different person after making that mistake. He said as a result of that, after himself having gone through the pain of that experience, that I made this my rule, that when the Lord commands, do it. (laughs) 
He learned from that experience. That's the value of living. Regardless of the fact that God knows exactly what we're going to do, the value for us is in learning from it. Now, here's another neat little example from the cha- this week's chapters of the Lord's omniscience. In chapter 7, Nephi, Sam, and Laman, and Lemuel are sent back to Jerusalem by the Lord a second time to get Ishmael's family. Which, by the way, is there any record of Laman and Lemuel complaining this time? <laughs> no, there isn't. And can't you see this conversation playing out between them and their father, Lehi? His father, Lehi, asked him to go back to Jerusalem. Of course, Laman and Lemuel, I'm sure, started complaining. Wait, you want us to go back again? We just came back. We almost got killed there. And you want us to go... Wait, you want us to go back to get Ishmael's family? Isn't that the family with all those really cute daughters? Oh, well... Father, I will go too and do the things which the Lord has commanded. I'm sure, although that's not written in the Book of Mormon, I'm sure somewhere that is exactly what Laman and Lemuel said as they jumped on their camels, uh, speeding back to Jerusalem to get the women and bring them down (laughs) into the wilderness with them. No record whatsoever of their complaining about that. But look in verse 6 at how many available daughters Ishmael has. We are first shown two daughters who were complaining in the wilderness with Laman Lemuel, which, by the way, can you guess which two daughters they most likely married? Light attracts light. Remember that. Uh, There is three other daughters that are mentioned in that verse for a grand total of five. Now, how many boys are traveling on this journey to the promised land that are in need of wives? Well, there's Laman and Lemuel, and at this point, Nephi and Sam. There's four. Oh, but who else accompanied their journey a little unexpectedly but Zoram for a grand total of five boys? Now, is that a coincidence that there just happens to be five available daughters born to Ishmael? Or is Heavenly Father just that good? He knew Zoram would be traveling with them long before any of them did, including Zoram himself. And he provided a wife for him as well. Now, how could he have done this? Isn't it totally random if a boy or a girl is born, let alone how many children parents decide to have? Well, that brings us to the second key principle, which Nephi points out here, is to never forget that God has all power. There is nothing too impossible for God. With God, all things are possible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? These are statements made by those in Scripture that understood this principle about the God that they worshipped and loved. I've shared personal experiences about this as well in previous episodes. One of those was during the, the book of Revelations from the New Testament that really opened my eyes to just how good God is. While I was growing up, I had this strange affinity as a young kid for frogs and snakes. And we had a family farm that I used to love to go to. And I would spend all my time just catching frogs and snakes. While my other cousins were out playing baseball and football, I was waiting in this canal catching frogs and snakes. I got really good at it. And I remember much later on in life, once sports kind of took over and, you know, interesting girls and those kind of things, Looking back, in fact, it was when I was a seminary teacher going through uh, a similar chapter as as this uh, that talked about God's omniscience and how one day he will help us to understand why things happened the way that they did and contemplated to myself all the questions I would ask God. And for some reason, one came to my mind, which was, why did I have this really strange obsession and affinity for frogs and snakes? And then in a quiet moment in my office, as I was just contemplating these random things, it was almost as if he opened the the book of life, which was referenced in the the book of Revelation, where everything's been recorded and written before it's ever been finished because of God's omniscience. And it was like he, he showed me a little glimpse of that. And I remembered an experience I had while I was young where on one occasion looking, walking along the the banks of this canal, our our family farm, looking for frogs and snakes, I heard a large splash. Thinking it was a giant frog and getting all excited, I ran over to the location of that splash, only to see my cousin Landon face down in the canal, who probably wasn't any more than three years old at the time, just starting to float down the canal, kind of fighting to to breathe because he couldn't swim. Looking around, there's nobody else anywhere near 
all the family was back to the farmhouse uh, getting ready for dinner. So I, it was up to me. I jumped in, <laughs> grabbed him, turned him over as he started coughing up water and pulled him to the side, started calling for help. And, and I remember his mom came over very frantic uh, about what had happened. And I didn't really think a lot of it at the time. It wasn't for years and years until years and years later that I just had the epiphany that is it possible that God knew that I would need to be there on the banks of that river at that moment, that precise moment, to save my cousin Landon because it wasn't his time to go yet. And what other way could he help me to to get there and to be there at that time than to have instilled within me this weird obsession for frogs and snakes? Maybe he just knew I would be that way anyway. Regardless, it was a clear reminder to me of just how good God is at managing the events of his children's lives. He has already foreseen everything that has ever happened to us or ever will ever happen to us and has already prepared the means necessary for us to get through it, to overcome it, and to survive it. It was not my cousin Landon's time to go. Not yet. He still had a mission to serve, a family to raise, and so he put in motion things that would be necessary to save him long before he ever needed it. And he does the same with us. And I know that he has done and will do the same for you. Now, a couple of key questions. Number one, does God really know all things? I want you to be able to answer that with a resilient and uh, resounding yes. Number two, do you really believe that he has all power? You need to be able to answer that question for yourself. Number three, how does understanding these two principles change the way that you view your life? How can they help you when going through hard things? How can they help when there doesn't seem to be a solution to your problems? How does the knowledge of these two principles help to eliminate fear in your life? How have you experienced this aspect of the Lord in your own personal life already? What is a difficult situation that you have been in or are in now? How long did the Lord know that you would be in this particular situation before you were? And what did he put in place long before to help you get through it? Or if you're still in it, how can this knowledge help or be of help to you when facing it? For the last principle today, I want to take a look at uh, 1 Nephi chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. I love how this week's lesson concludes because it begins with one of the greatest revelations that I think has ever been received and ends with um, kind of an invitation on how we can experience revelation for ourselves. In verse 17, Nephi records, And it came to pass after I, Nephi, having heard all the words of my father concerning the things which he saw in a vision, and also the things which he spake by the power of the Holy Ghost, which power he received by faith on the Son on the Son of God, and the Son of God was the Messiah who should come, that I, Nephi, was desirous also, that I might see and hear and know of these things by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is the gift of God unto all those who diligently seek him, as well in times of old as in the time that he should manifest himself unto the children of men. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the way is prepared for all men from the foundation of the world, if it so be that they repent and come unto him. For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be enfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well as in these times, as in times of old, as well in times of old, as in times to come. Wherefore, the course of the Lord is one eternal round." And I love this because, well, it's Nephi's desire clearly to know of the things that have been shared with him for himself. I'm sure he loved hearing them from his father, and he trusts his father and believes in his father, but he also wanted his own witness. And he knew and believed and testified that that is exactly what God is able and willing to do, to provide that personal witness, that personal revelation for us as in times uh, as past, as well as in times to come, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he is willing to reveal himself and his mysteries unto all those that seek him. And I think this is crucial to understand, especially for you young people out there, because the purpose of studying these things and going through the Book of Mormon this year, or, or really any book of scripture any year, isn't just to learn about them and what's in them, 
but to come to know for ourselves, to know for yourself that they are true, that what you're reading is true, that it really happened, and to discover the process of receiving personal revelation as a part of it. And I might argue, uh, as an example, that as incredible as the first vision was, that the most important thing that Joseph walked out of the sacred grove with wasn't just the experience that he had in seeing God, but it was the ability and understanding of how to regularly connect with God. It wasn't his answer to prayer as much as it was an understanding of how to receive answers through study and prayer. Because it was that knowledge and that understanding that he would learn to rely on again and again all throughout his life to help direct his decisions both both personally and as far as the work goes that he was engaged in. I know we all want and long for and, and seek for and search for answers to prayer. And I just wanted to share one important aspect of receiving answers to prayer that came to me while I was in the MTC getting ready to leave on my mission. I had read and studied the Book of Mormon several times, but here I was about to go out and teach it to others that had never read it. And I felt like I needed my own personal confirmation that it was true, something powerful, something that really had or could become a part of my story and my testimony. I had heard several other people tell of a particular defining moment where a powerful witness came to them. It was their own kind of first vision moment and experience, and I wanted that for myself. I wanted to be able to tell others that I had prayed about the Book of Mormon and that the heavens were parted and a light came down or angels appeared, or at the very least, there was this incredible overpowering feeling to where I just knew that it was true. But try as I might, night after night, that answer just didn't come in the way that I wanted it to. Prayer after prayer, I asked if the Book of Mormon was true, but there was nothing. I was getting more and more frustrated until one evening I asked again if the Book of Mormon was true, but I think I also expressed a little frustration uh, in asking why, God, aren't you answering and revealing this truth to me like you said you would? And in that moment of expressing that frustration and asking that question, I remember a simple little thought that came into my mind that simply said, you already know it is true. <laughs> I laugh about it now. At the time, I wasn't. it wasn't so funny, but I remember thinking, huh, yeah, I guess I do. My answer that came to me, as I now believe is and will be the pattern for most people, did not come all at once. Although it certainly can happen that way, I have since learned that God does not often operate that way. He instead likes to reveal truth a little at a time, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, sometimes so gently and softly and even quietly that we might miss it and not even recognize that those answers are coming to us. I believe a part of the reason for this is to help us to learn to walk by the Spirit on a regular basis. After all, it's always with us, and it will guide us as needed each and every day of our lives in small and little ways. I believe God intends for us, and He wants us to learn to trust ourselves in the process and Him. He says Himself that it's not meat that man should be commanded in all things. He wants us to use our God-given intellect and the, the principles and knowledge that we've gained in making some of these decisions. If he always answered us in big ways, I don't know if we would ever make decisions without those big moments to which he's basically telling us what to do. And I don't know that there's real growth in that. In fact, just the opposite could happen. We might become a little too dependent and never move or do anything unless there's a big answer. Most of Joseph's deep revelations didn't come as angels or visions, although he certainly had those. But instead, they came as thoughts, feelings, and impressions that guided him each and every day and that ended up leading to those bigger experiences when the Lord's timing was right for them. And so this year, as you study the, the scriptures and seek for your own knowledge and testimony of the truthfulness of these things, as you approach your Heavenly Father for guidance and confirmation of the things that you've learned or studied or been taught, like Nephi did, remember these principles. Number one is that God can and will reveal truth to you today as much as he did to any of those in scripture back then. 
And number two, that as Nephi points out, when it comes to receiving answers and confirmation, that God must be diligently sought. I remember on one occasion when I was teaching seminary, a student coming up to me after class and saying, Brother Downs, I don't believe any of this. None of it's true. I've been praying to, to know if the Book of Mormon's true, if the church is true, and I just haven't gotten anything. Therefore, it must not be true. Now, at the time, I, I mean, what do you say to that? There really isn't anywhere you can go because that's what we're always told to do is to, to study and to pray and ask God if it's true, and he'll tell us that it's true. So initially, I was like, oh, what do I say to this student? And then I had the thought to ask him how long he had been reading and praying. <laughs> so I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, tell me a little bit more. Like, how long have you been reading, you know, the, the scriptures and praying about them to know if they were true in the church for that matter? And he said, well, for the past week, Brother Downs, I've been doing it for one week and I've got nothing. Well, I had to teach him that second principle that in order to receive personal revelation and confirmation, especially of these things, that it requires diligence and that diligence is best measured by consistency and time. The third principle is to know that his answers won't always come as grand visions or overpowering feelings. In fact, often they will come in small and simple ways. So look for the little things. And lastly is to trust yourself. Often the Lord's spirit and voice will be found in what you think and feel is right and best. You'll feel it in your guts and in your heart. And it's more often our head that gets in the way of those things. We need to learn to trust ourselves and what we just feel is right. Elder Scott gave a wonderful talk. If you're looking for any additional resources on, on how to answer or how to recognize answers from prayers. In fact, I think that's the title of his talk, How to Recognize Answers from Prayers. Um, in that talk, he said a couple of things that are super helpful. He said, when we explain a problem and a proposed solution, sometimes the Lord answers yes and sometimes no. And often he withholds an answer, not for lack of concern, but because he loves us perfectly. He wants us to apply truths that he has given us. For us to grow, we need to trust our ability to make correct decisions. See, there's that reference again to trust ourselves. We need to do, he said, what we feel is right. In time, he will answer. He will not fail us. He says, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost. When we receive an impression in our heart, we can use our mind either to rationalize it away or to accomplish it. So be careful what you do with an impression from the Lord. He is our perfect Father. He loves us beyond our capacity to understand. He knows what is best for us. He sees the end from the beginning. Yep, He knows all. And He wants us to act to gain needed experience. So, when He answers yes, it is to give us confidence. When He answers no, it is to prevent error. But when He withholds an answer, it is to have us grow through faith in Him, obedience to His commandments, and a willingness to act on truth. We are expected to assume accountability by acting on a decision that is consistent with his teachings without prior confirmation. We are not to sit passively waiting or to murmur because the Lord has not spoken. We are to act. Again, a great talk. I would highly encourage you to check out, to read. It's one that I like to read often because I am constantly needing to be reminded about how the Lord answers prayers. And I'll have the link for that talk in the, the notes uh, as well in the study and teaching guide. A couple key questions from this last principle. First might be, what spiritual truths do you desire to know for yourself that they are true? Can you say with certainty that you really want to know that there is a real desire? Because God will often wait until there is. What do you think it looks like to approach God in faith and confidence that an answer will come? Because that's a big part of it. Another question to consider, how might that faith and confidence be tested? How was Nephi's faith and confidence tested in the revelation that he received about trying to obtain the brass plates? How important was it for him to act even though he hadn't received an answer and didn't know how to accomplish what the Lord wanted him to do. I might encourage you to mark the phrase of going back to that part of the story where he's trying to obtain the brass plates, where he said, I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. Nevertheless, I went forth. 
He didn't know what to do, but he knew as long as he acted as the best way that he knew how that God would provide the answers that he needed and the way would be opened up before him. Another question to consider, how have you experienced God answering your prayers? How did those answers often come for you? What prayers have you been struggling with getting answers to? And how can you maybe apply Elder Scott's counsel to them? Why is it so important that we continually try to receive revelation and answers from the Lord? How can we learn to trust ourselves more? What kinds of things need to be in place to be more confident in our ability to be guided by the Spirit correctly? And what does it mean to you to diligently seek Him? I hope this has been helpful. There's a lot there this week, but a lot of great things for you to study. I can't wait for you to dive into these chapters if you haven't already and find so many more of these wonderful truths and principles for yourself. As always, remember, if you haven't left me a review, please leave me one. It helps so much in getting this podcast out there for others to find. I would also maybe ask if there's somebody in mind that, that, or that comes to mind that can benefit from the principles of this podcast, whether they're a young person or not, please share this podcast and episode with them. I would love to see this audience continue to grow. And remember that you can download both the transcript from this episode and the study and teaching guide, which will be released shortly from both the show notes as well as my website under joshdowns.com. And come follow me under the podcast. You'll find it there. And as always, please remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This, as always, has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige, the great and spacious building. Really, the only true test of greatness, of blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ, how close we can get to the tree, because he is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, or he is the path, the rod, and the tree, and he invites us all to come follow me. So let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.